This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello to our listeners. I am Dara Nartash, a co-host of the Middle Eastern Studies channel of the New Books Network. Last month, I sat down with Chris Gradian to talk about his new book, The Unsettled Plain, An Environmental History of the Late Ottoman Frontier, published by Stanford University Press in March 2022. Chris's book brings together histories of the environment, labor, Contagious Diseases and Agricultural Development. It tells the story of the Cilician Plain, or Chukurova, on the eastern Mediterranean shore of Turkey from the mid-19th century to the 1950s. In our conversation, we talked about, among other things, the late Ottoman civilizing mission, methods of labor and environmental history, and the afterlives of the Turkish state's war against malaria. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Virginia in the Department of History. Uh, also uh, the co-founder and longtime producer of Ottoman History Podcast. That's how people know me. We are so happy to have you today uh, to talk about your fantastic new book, uh, The Unsettled Plain. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, I have a lot of questions, but before we delve into the meat of it, I guess I wanted to start by asking you, where did this book begin for you? So the book is based on my dissertation and therefore the product of a very long experience in which you know, one transforms a lot intellectually. But when I was editing it and making decisions about what to cut, what to include, and how to narrate things, I realized that I wrote the book that I would have wanted to read when I was uh, an undergraduate student. That sort of the kind of questions and all the different themes that brought me to social history, um, sort of as someone in their early 20s, just learning about the world, uh, we're really all reflected in this particular piece of work. So I don't know what things I'll write in the future. And I've actually, you know, written other things in the interim but since I began the project. Um, but yeah, I think it's for me uh, a greatest hits of social and environmental history of the modern world told through this really fascinating and understudied place uh, of Chukurova, the uh, modern day southern Turkey. And how did you um, arrive at Chukurova as the place uh, you would write about in your dissertation and, and, and what became your book eventually? 
when I was working on my master's and studying Arabic and Turkish in Syria and Turkey, uh, I had the opportunity to take a bus from Istanbul to Damascus to visit a friend. And we stopped in this place where I woke up. I was sweating like crazy. It was very hot. It was Adana, and I didn't really know anything about it. But I talked to some people on the bus, and I, I saw on that trip a version of the Middle East that I didn't get from books or from the internet back in the U.S., and, and that I didn't get from you know Cairo or Beirut or Istanbul, that there was this whole space that's kind of ignored in between all the big cities um, that is actually really interesting. Uh, the Chukurova region, or Cilicia historically, was home to very diverse communities of Muslims and Christians of various denominations, speakers of Turkish, Arabic, Kurdish, Armenian, and then a large immigrant population that comes during the 19th century from all different parts of the region surrounding the Ottoman Empire. So you had this incredible amount of diversity in a small space that's very ignored by the historiography in English. And really what I saw as a microcosm of the transformation of the Middle East. So if you were someone with broad interests, it seemed like the perfect place to spend, you know, a decade of research. Well, that's wonderful. A bus from like Damascus to Adana is, or or to Istanbul rather, you were saying, is unimaginable <laughs> yeah. uh, to somebody who's, you know, uh, in my generation of PhD students, unfortunately. Um, so you open your book with the story of Amar, on whose behalf the lament of Amar, uh, son of Durmusha, was written and preserved in oral tradition. Having consulted your dissertation and now read your book, it appears to me that this song inspired you at different stages of this project. Um, and how did you first meet the Lament of Amar and the refrain, the mountains are ours? And how did you encounter, um, how did your encounter with the song shape your research and the book that came out of it? So you just mentioned two different folk songs. One of them is a very famous poem by this bard, Dadal Olu, who gave us this refrain, Dalar Bizimdir, the mountains are ours, within the context of a local rebellion against Ottoman forced settlement policies. And, you know, this was th the title of the dissertation. Like, sort of, this was uh, an argument about the intersection of, of politics and environment in the Ottoman Empire that really drove the study from the beginning. Um, the Lament of Omer that you mentioned is a very different kind of song. It's a song about a young man who had an unfortunate death due to malaria. In fact, um, that was, you know, according to the folklorists who recorded it, it was written by his mother or, or in the voice of his mother. And there's different versions of it that exist. And it was one of these quotidian things where I first found it and took note, oh, there's a song about a young man dying of malaria in this tragic way. At the time, I had just made note of it. But as I was developing the book, I realized that these types of songs are methodologically very important for what I was trying to say about writing the social history uh, of the late Ottoman Empire or writing environmental history, that this song gives you a window onto really um, what the transformations I study in the book meant for ordinary people. Um, 
And it reminds us that, you know, the death of a single youngster is such a profound, you know, experience, a, a, a tragic experience usually for a family um, and for a community. And I, I started the book that way because what we get in the five chapters is really similar stories, but compounded on the level of talking, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of people over the course of a century of change. So that's that that was really um, why I chose to open the book that way, is that it's just one little glimpse into one little story about a person who loved and lost. And to remind the reader that even though we didn't get into depth about every single person I talked about, we don't always have their voices, that behind each event we talk about, each displacement, each massacre, each you know, planting season of cotton. There are stories of so many people uh, that are in that. Thank you. Your book is centered around um, Cilicia and Chukurova. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what Cilicia is, what Chukurova is, um, and what should we know about the physical and human geographies and ecologies of what you call a historical borderland um, before we sort of before we can apprehend uh, the sort of major arguments of your of your book that we will delve into. Sure, I'll try to be brief. Brief because um, one of the challenges of always introducing this work, if you work with a nation state container, like if you just tell people Turkey or Syria or Lebanon, whatever, they have some idea in their head. But when you're dealing with something below the nation state, it gets a little complicated to explain what we're talking about. The region I refer to as historical Cilicia, and which today in Turkey is known as the Chukarova region, is really defined by its geography and how that geography facilitates movements and connections within a, a space. So the, it's a space really, it's a space constructed by the way people use the space. So we're talking about um, a coastal region of southern Turkey or northern Syria, historically speaking. Um, it's really the crossroads between Syria and Anatolia. Um, a large, fertile, well-watered, low-lying uh, littoral plain surrounded by the Taurus and Amanus Mountains. Um, so it's a, as a region... It contains a, a large amount of environmental diversity. You have on one hand mountainous microclimates that are very familiar to historians of the Mediterranean and that might resemble places people often like like liken the Taurus Mountains to Switzerland. On the other hand, you have this hot, humid, low-lying plain that people liken to Egypt, and you have it all within a few days' walk. So it's a whole environmentally and socially diverse world unto itself. Um, and what I realized is that to understand how this world came to be the way it was in the 19th century, you need to go back several centuries of historical experience in Cilicia as a borderland, a borderland between the Byzantine and early Islamic empires, the Umayyads and, Abbasid, and Abbasids, a process that eventually led to the creation of a medieval um, Armenian kingdom that was sovereign and independent in this interconnected Cilicia region, um, and then further led to the establishment of semi-independent 
beyliks or principalities ruled by um, Turkic communities that had migrated to Anatolia um, over centuries. And then finally, of incorporation into the Ottoman state during the 16th century, but on terms in which local communities maintain a lot of their autonomy. So this um, historical experience, to make a long story short, of not really being under the very centralized control of a state, of sort of being at the boundaries of different states or being a sphere of local autonomy from a larger imperial state, I think really shaped the region in all sorts of ways, including environmentally. Um, How did it shape the region environmentally? So as I mentioned, you know, you have the situation of mountains and plains that's Mm -hmm. very similar, uh, very familiar to the Mediterranean and facilitates a seasonal movement um, between the highlands and the lowlands that we could call transhumance. Um, uh, It takes many forms. It can be nomadic pastoralism, people living in tents. It could be summer and winter villages or people live in the city and then go to the mountains in the summer for diverse reasons. Um, And this was a rhythm shared by pretty much all the communities that lived in this region up to the 19th century. It's attested in all the sources we have as being sort of the defining feature of this region culturally. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, for uh, centralized imperial states, this has real implications for how you govern such a place. You can't govern a place where people are retreating on an annual basis into the mountains in the same way that you would govern just town settled townsfolk who are not engaged in such large patterns of migration and not inhabiting places that are difficult for the state to build a direct presence. And in the context of a lot of local autonomy, it kind of, it was kind of a self-perpetuating tendency uh, towards local autonomy built out of this particular relationship that people have with the geography. It's not that the environment determined how they lived their lives because the region was home to artisans, uh, agriculturalists, pastoralists, merchants, you know, a, a wide array uh, of lifestyles. And even within those, the pastoralists had very different ways of life from each other. In some cases, spoke different languages, had distinctive communal identities, right? The environment doesn't really dictate everything about their lives. Um, but the way in which people move through space was fundamental to why this region was a sort of bastion of local autonomy for different communities uh, that made up the Ottoman countryside um, as of the mid-19th century. This brings us to an important plot point uh, that begins to unravel in your book. And I think there are, or, or the way that I can apprehend, there are sort of several overlapping narratives, but two that emerge uh, in this chapter that I wanted to bring our attention to. So on the one hand, we have the civilizing mission of Ahmed Cevdet Pasha and the Furkayi Islahiye, the reform division, whose expeditions to the mountains of Cilicia he relays with such detail in the Tezakir and Maruzat. Um, on the other hand, we have cotton cultivation and the development of Chukurova as the second Egypt, during, uh, especially during the years of the American Civil War. While sort of malaria is an important actor in the story that uh, Ahmed Javdet Pasha is relaying, um, 
the sort of uh, cotton cultivation and agricultural development is an is an important part of the sort of uh, agrarian and social and uh, environmental history of the region. And these kind of intersect and inform one another. How? <laughs> well, that's the book, right? And <laughs> there's a there's a lot there, and you summarize basically what it's all about. Oh, we could call this book um, an environmental history of the Tanzimat reforms, basically. This would be an easy way to think about it if we're just wading into Ottoman history. You have these reforms of the Ottoman state aimed at creating centralized and more standardized um, control of different provinces uh, for very practical reasons, raising taxes, um, having a modern army, these types of things. Um, and what I argue is that at least in Chukarova, what what the project of the ten what the what the project of the Tanzimat becomes is uh, an attempt to uh, reform, is how they thought of it, or reshape the countryside. Um, and so one one prong of this is what you mentioned: um, settlement policies, um, forcing nomadic people to settle, settling refugees of uh, you know conflict with the Russian Empire in sparsely cultivated lowlands uh, of the Chukarova region. So really trying to, you know, engage in a, in a, in a, in a, a settler uh, policy, maybe not settler colonial, but it's a, it's a settler empire at this point. The Ottoman Empire becomes a settler state, much like European empires. And on the other hand, what you have is the incorporation of this region into um, the world economy, the, the economy of the Mediterranean, through an increase in uh, commercial export of cotton, which follows the U.S. Civil War, which creates uh, all these markets. Um, it, it creates new um, potential for export to markets like, uh, you know, Manchester, where there was suddenly um, a paucity of uh, material for manufacturing textiles and whatnot. So you have these two um, overlapping uh, stories side by side, which sounds like the making of a of a great transformation, taking a place that's a borderland and turning it into a agriculturally productive, densely settled region. It makes sense why the Ottoman Empire would try to pursue this. Um, and in the long durée, that's kind of what happens to this region. But the confounding factor that runs throughout the book is the other thing you mentioned, malaria. That when you try to settle people permanently in a region like this, um, or when you promote commercial agriculture, growing cotton, which is picked at the end of the summer, this is creating a new dynamic in which people are suddenly at risk of contracting malaria, which is a mosquito-borne illness, um, in ways that they weren't before. If people were migrating to the mountains, um, in the summer, consciously to avoid malaria, as I show in the book, quite consciously, then these policies and economic developments are also against their like own interests in a way. Uh, this is borne out, of course, by the malaria epidemics that occur as a result of settlement, huge mortality, abandonment of these settlements as a result, and an adjustment of Ottoman policy. But even though everyone in this situation, as I show, is aware of what's going on, both officials and the people who are the subjects of these policies, with time, 
as settlement policy and commercial agriculture become entrenched as the new forces reshaping this region, malaria just becomes part of daily life for ordinary people and society's most, most vulnerable workers, children, people living in the remote countryside. They're the ones who bear the brunt of this old disease, which has taken on a new form within the context of uh, the late Ottoman transformation. Thank you. Yeah, this uh, sort of, I've been, I was thinking a lot about your book in terms of cycles, <laughs> um, because there are a lot of cycles that sort of this region is subject to, some of which are natural and some of which are sort of being produced as a result of the transformations that you just told us about. So on the one hand, you have like, a seasonal transhumans that is a well-established pattern of people going to the mountains in the summers to avoid malaria. But then with the uh, cotton boom and like the, the cultivation of increasing um, amounts of cotton in the context of the civil war in the United States, uh, you get a seasonal migration into Cilicia of workers. Can you tell us a bit more about what uh, these seasonal laborers who these seasonal labor, laborers are, where they're coming from, and how they interact uh, with, the, with the local ecology? That's a great question. And for people who are interested in global history of capitalism or labor history, I think this is an episode really worth visiting. Labor in the Ottoman Empire is often written about in terms of what it is not, right? It is not the factory setting of, you know, England that results in industrialization and also the formation of unions and the rise of modern working class identity. It's different. Um, but rather than focusing on this different difference, I think if we have a more integrated view of the world economy in, in which what happens in Chukarova is basically simultaneous to what we talk about in, you know, working class history of, 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 of Europe and, and, and labor movements, then really, I think it expands the purview of what labor history can be, which again has, has been constrained by what it was for Western countries. So in Chukarova, due to the low population and high amount of available fertile land for cotton and wheat cultivation, you have almost instantaneously a system of seasonal migrant labor emerging that lasts for over a century, really. And it's defined by people coming from other parts of the empire to Chukarova uh, for the wheat harvest and, 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 and cotton planting in the spring and um, working there as wage laborers until the end of the cotton harvest at the you know, end of summer, beginning of fall. And you have people coming from all over, from other parts of Anatolia, the mountainous highlands where there's less employment opportunities. Um, so people might be identified as Turkish, Kurdish, or Armenian. You also have people coming from the east, as far as the other side of the Iranian border. And again, these people might be identified as Kurdish, Armenian, Assyrian, and so forth. And then a large um, number of the workers in Chukarova who slowly become permanent settlers in the region, in fact, are a group that today would be identified as Alawites from northern Syria or from northern Syria or Nusairi Arabs. 
uh, who live, you know, around the region of Antakya and, and what we call the Alawite coast of um, northern Syria. And that's those are just like the big groups. And um, what's really interesting about this is, one, the labor flows over the course of the Ottoman period sort of grow as the city of Adana itself grows. And they're about the same size. So we're talking maybe uh, 30, 50,000 at the beginning of the cotton boom in the 1860s. But by the eve of First World War, people are talking about maybe 70, 100,000 workers. So really keeping pace with the size of the city, the largest city in the region. Um, and, uh, you know, they're negotiating their relatively high wages um, on a weekly basis. Uh, but there are these nodes of information as well. Um, that travel through the empire and the government plays a role in sending information about wages and demand for workers throughout the provinces. So it's this, it's not a totally like free market driven situation, right? Um, uh, the state, but also like local political economy, like local leaders play a role in facilitating these worker movements. And when I say worker, these are both men and women, families migrating together in some cases. It's not uh, strictly like men doing this labor. That's important to point out. And so it really is a, I mean, really somebody should do a whole book just about this, uh, one topic, a whole book on, um, the seasonal workers of the Chukarova region. Um, cause there hasn't been that much written on it. Yeah, I hope I hope some someone takes you up on that on that mantle. <laughs> uh, would be very interesting, certainly to read. Um, but you know, you do quite a bit of that yourself um, in the book, and there is actually a line of argument that I found uh, very interesting and and captivating and new in the uh, literature on the late Ottoman sort of eruption of violence against Armenians, which is that you suggest that there's no sort of direct causal relationship between the changing um, sort of socioeconomic context and the arrival of laborers from many different parts of the empire into the region uh, and the violence against Armenians. However, there is a sort of socioeconomic world that was transformed by commercialized agriculture that perhaps became um, conducive to the kinds of violence that we see um, around 1909 during the infamous Adana massacres. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, how you saw um, these two things intersecting and um, developing around that time? There are a lot of ways to think about this. And, you know, most of the stuff that's been written in English about this region has been on those 1909 massacres in which reports say as high as 20, 30,000 people were killed, most of them Armenians, in massacres that occurred not just in one city like Adana, but all throughout this province um, at the local level. So they were very horrific events that the world noticed um, that had precedence during the 1890s uh, when in other parts of Anatolia, similar violence was aimed at Armenians uh, in, you know, the, the, the provinces that are predominantly Armenian provinces. And so a lot of people have talked about how this was related to various 
uh, political transformations. Um, there has been some work also on how taxation um, factored into some of the changes that were occurring in Eastern Anatolia that may have informed this violence as well. But a lot of it is focused on um, basically the politicization of confessional identities and the Ottoman state's active role in that under Sultan Abdul Hamid II with the creation of the so-called Hamidiyya cavalry to secure regions that are border regions, but are also, you know, had large Armenian populations. Um, what I, what I was interested in writing about in this book was, you know, everything else about this region's history and not, not centering that, but it does end up being directly smack dab in the center of the book because of when these occur and because of how they're related to these larger transformations. One of the things that I point out drawing on Nicholas Dumanis's work on the Greco-Turkish population exchange is that quote unquote harmonious relationships between different communities are more the product of like stable, let's say intercommunal bonds on the basis of um, quotidian connections, uh, ways in which daily life, whether economic or, you know, urban cultural life, um, foster a sense of shared sharing a space with a community that is otherwise that you're otherwise maintaining a boundary with, right? So there's a, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, rather than trying to make it about like, oh, what was it about Ottoman policy that made people live together, and then how did it change that made them not live together? Let's l- let's build it from the bottom up. And what you see in this region is one a lot of movement of people, a lot of migration, a lot of new communities, um, a lot of fragmentary social formations arising out of both the migrant labor context, but also out of the fact that you have people being resettled. And in addition with, you know, commercialization, you have on one hand, some actors in the cities using confessional identities to try to engage in economic competition with, say, let's say, Armenian or Greek merchants. You have cases of of Muslim merchants trying to stoke, you know, anti-Armenian sentiment for their benefit. Um, But on the other hand, you know, one of the other things I point out is that in 1909, these massacres occur right at the beginning of the the planting season in the spring, which is also, they they occur right around Easter as well. but this is when a large number of people are descending on the region, and they've, they're coming from the provinces where similar kinds of violence have already played out. And so I guess to sum up all the different ways in which those massacres of 1909 were connected to the transformations I just described, I'd say the following. One is that like, this is a completely reshaped world in a span of decades the social world the economic world uh, of uh, the adana region had totally changed and so this is not like a old static state of harmony that was suddenly disrupted um but the second is that though those events played out in that space and we should pay attention to the particularities this is ultimately about something larger that was happening in the ottoman empire that converges on this particular region in a moment of crisis. And so for those who are interested in learning more about this, I would recommend a a book that was actually released on the same day as mine, The Horrors of Adana by Bedros Dermatosian. 
I haven't had a look at it yet, actually, but I'm familiar with his work on it from his dissertation and, and other publications where you get the real, you'll get a real deep dive into all the different layers of um, uh, history that, uh, you know, sort of coalesce in this one event or one series of events in 1909. Uh, thank you. Um, so I'm going to gradually move us towards World War One, But before I go there, I wanted to ask you about your sources, because I feel like when we talk about labor history in particular, one of the questions that um, maybe my recent rereading of E.P. Thompson has had me asking a lot is, uh, what are the sources that people can turn to for rich histories of labor or, or, or rich stories of, of, of labor? And what are the sources that you turn to? Well, my approach to this topic was that, you know, Cilicia, or, you know, it's not a country as a political entity, but I just approach is that I'm going to go anywhere where there's sources that I can read about this region and piece together its history. So if you check the footnotes, you'll notice that a lot of the sections of the book are really synthesizing sources from all sorts of different archives and publish sources, songs, like really kind of like, like, needing all these different sources together, of course, largely relying on the Ottoman archives, but it's a lot more than that. However, you know, for this question of workers, what I'll also point out is that I talk about a little in the beginning of the book that really I used figures like Yashar Kemal, the novelist uh, who who already ha had written fantastic novels in Turkish about the Chukarova region. Basically, every subject in the book is touched on in his novels. And we can use his work and other uh, works that came out of this region um, during the, you know, latter, the, the middle and latter half of the 20th century as a starting point for for seeing history through the eyes of people who aren't always reflected robustly in the historical record. What I mean is that Yashar Kemal wrote his novels and, and made his protagonists, you know, ordinary rural people, migrant workers, uh, and he tried to put their experiences at the center of really epic stories that are really, you know, fleshed out and, and moving. And so... I would say that that type of work is a good starting place for people who are interested. Um, historical memory of Turkey is a good starting place. You don't have to start in the Ottoman archives because you won't, you won't get that richness there. Um, the archival documents in combination with literature and memory sort of bring that history to life. And you, when you find a document about workers coming from this place and doing this thing and sending through those, so those other sources, you can actually start to put some meat on the bones of what you're getting from the archives. So, I mean, that um, uh, was my primary approach to the sources that I expected the Ottoman archives to have the most empirical information, but it wasn't going to tell a good story on its own. Thank you. So, Moving to the World War One period, which was experienced quite quite harshly all around the world, but also in the Ottoman Empire and the Middle East in general, 
Um, there was a great sort of loss of life, um, mass displacement, um, you know, genocidal violence, hunger, disease, uh, death on the battlefields, death off of the battlefields. This was a really like harrowing moment in the in the history of the region. Um, and you suggest that Chukurova in this period was a sort of microcosm for these dynamics that I just outlined. Um, can you tell us a bit about how the region's ecology and socio-cultural context shape its experiences of the war? Thanks. There's a lot we can say about the World War I experience in any region of the Ottoman Empire, I think. And there have been some other attempts at writing sort of provincial histories of the First World War uh, that are coming out now, because um, there's been a lot of energy around studying the social history of the war uh, in the Ottoman Empire for, let's say, I don't know, 10, 15 years now. And I found the Cilicia region very emblematic of the Ottoman experience as a whole because of the following things. One, this is a region that was among the most agriculturally productive in the empire and was exporting a lot of material within the empire and abroad. The conditions of the war caused that commercial economy to collapse and to, to the point where the region barely produces enough food to feed the remaining people there. Intertwined with this is a number of mass displacements. The displacement of refugees from the Balkan Wars who are settled in certain provinces, including Adana. The deportation of Armenians during the Armenian Genocide. And this region is central to that, both in having a large Armenian population, but also being sort of a, a very crucial point on the Ottoman railway system. Um, meanwhile, you have refugees from the east of the empire, mainly Kurdish and Turkish refugees who are fleeing the fighting that's going on there. And they're ending up sort of the Adana region is sort of the first place where they're ending up and settling. There's tens of thousands of such people in the province by the end of the war. Yasha Kamal's parents were apparently some of them. And uh, so you have these like intertwined displacements that are all happening everywhere in the empire, but are really like centered on um, the Adana region. And then the last thing I talk about is, of course, the environmental consequences, that there's a empire-wide malaria pandemic during the war, and its center is really the Adana region, but the, at least the way it's written in the medical sources we have, it's actually a very weird location in the Taurus Mountains where you wouldn't expect to have a, a malaria epidemic. And of course you have it because of the ways in which the interconnection of the entire empire, sort of the choke point is this region. So those are the re reasons why I make that argument that it is sort of a microcosm or emblematic, maybe even central to the social history of the First World War in the Ottoman Empire. But it's also in the, central in the other sense you mentioned. So after the war, uh, France occupies and fails to incorporate into its um, mandate territories of Syria and Lebanon, the Cilicia region. Um, and as a result of that experience, 
in a way that is not exceptional to this region, you have a final end to shared Muslim and Christian political life. The exile of this uh, surviving Armenian community, exchange of population with Greece afterwards, um, ends that. And what you notice in the memory literature of those communities is that the generation that actually lived in the Ottoman Empire, they still had some fond memories, the Greek and Armenian um, refugees uh, and migrants who were part of the diaspora. But those, of course, the, the complex memories are lost with the loss of a shared life and with and under the weight of nationalist historiographies for all those different communities, especially in Turkey. And so the reason why I, I pointed that out in this chapter, even though my work wasn't really concerned with this dimension or the memory, is that with World War I and its consequences, we're really talking about the destruction of a world and what is created in its place is not the same world. So it's the, the end of the world in some sense for communities that had been through so much and historical terms, they went through it together too. So it's kind of, you know, a lot of times a study that might pick a hundred years of Ottoman history and straddle the first world war might gloss over it, or you might not even be able to deal with just everything that went on. And I did more than a book's worth of research on that period because there is so much going on. Um, but I think it's really um, crucial for, for us as, as um, Ottoman historians of any period to dwell on what that really meant, because that experience influences every single topic in Ottoman history, whether it's medieval, early modern, or modern, in my opinion. I think you're absolutely right um, in giving World War One the stage it deserves in this book, because I often wonder how one deals with the transition from the Ottoman period to the early Republican period, which is also where I want to head now um, in our conversation. And there are actually like really easy ways to gloss over it or um, not or, or, or think of it in such sort of massive terms that uh, you can either focus on the period before or period after. So either sort of see it as a continuity that is only slightly disrupted or see it as a complete break that uh, you cannot reconcile the two sides of the history. And I think that something The Unsettled Plane does so well is uh, straddling both parts of that history while giving World War I the weight that it deserves in um, the historiography. And another, uh, so another thing that comes out in your chapter on the, on the early Republican period are still like, you know, despite this um, end of the world or changing of the world, there are certain continuities. There are reasons why the nascent Republican um, state has certain uh, policies there uh, and how these are building on late Ottoman attempts to govern the agrarian um, sort of economy, especially of Chukurova. And it seems to me that 
there is a difference between how uh, the Republican project in the countryside is taking place than in other places in the empire. So just as sort of state building in the Ottoman Empire is uneven and different, nation state building in the Turkish Republic is uneven and different. How do you see uh, that difference? And how do you see Cilicia as a sort of, I don't want to say unique, but um, a, a place whose dynamics were different from the surrounding regions in that period? Thanks. But that's a great question because it does bring us back to, you know, I love refrains for me are like a, a conceptual tool that like, you know, phenomenologically history is comp comprised of repetition of different cycles and, and, and refrains that, that transform, right? It's the refrain that transforms. It's not like, there's no other way to think about it for me. So while things are new, uh, the way that in which they're new is in how they manifest slightly differently than they had in the past. And one of these themes that we can talk about is the borderland context. So now in the Republic of Turkey, former Cilicia, now known as Chukarova, becomes a borderland in two senses. It's, a, it's first of all, the border um, with Syria. But second of all, this becomes, because of that Ottoman history, uh, the, the late Ottoman history, this region becomes uh, the interface of two different parts of Turkey. Um, the more economically prosperous West and the more peripheral and uh, more problematically integrated east of Turkey, the predominantly Kurdish regions of modern Turkey. Um, Chukarov was right at the center. For people in that, you know, eastern Turkey who want to move to the city for work, their first stop is probably going to be Adana and maybe then after that Istanbul and eventually Germany, who knows? But it's like sort of a gateway um, between the center, quote unquote, and the periphery of this nation state. And as a result, sort of embodies a little bit of the dynamics of both. Um, and in addition, what I argue is that it becomes a sort of national laboratory for all the different ways in which technology or technocracy is being deployed by the Republican government in, in agriculture, uh, in, 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 in the economy, but also in terms of public health. Right. So you, you write about the um, Malaria Institute that got founded in this region. And, and that's a very fascinating kind of episode in this history as well. Can you tell us a bit more about this institute and how it um, came to function? So the Adana Malaria Institute was the most important research and public health institution for malaria in Turkey, probably after the one in Ankara, the new capital. And its role in daily life is pretty remarkable. If you look at at least the sources that I've looked at, it seems like doctors and nurses became part of everyday people's lives in a way that, you know, maybe they hadn't had much ex direct experience with government officials during the late Ottoman period even. So this is like one of their first encounters with a government representative. If it's not at school, it's through these 
annual malaria examinations where the Republican government each fall tried to test the entire population of the region for malaria, inspect their homes for mosquitoes and exterminate them, um, obviously undertake all sorts of environmental transformations to combat malaria, but also sending doctors from all over Turkey. By the late 30s, I believe the number is like roughly a hundred of we're in the new cohort of um, doctors in training from all over Turkey who would come to uh, study and get practical knowledge of how to um, carry out these uh, public health measures that were going on all over Turkey. Adana becomes the perfect training ground because it is this like big modern city that's easy to get to, but it still has this vast rural countryside that has all the same problems that define some of the more um, uh, remote and um, more economically struggling regions of the new nation state. So it has this sort of town and country interface that is very, um, I guess, uh, accessible to doctors and training into the medical establishment. Right. And you also framed this kind of moment as an all out war that the Republican state is waging against nature. I mean, it's not just about, um, well, it is about curbing the malaria epidemic, but to do that, you have to like in, in, in their, in their perception of it, you have to, uh, go to war against nature and manipulate nature in ways that will make, um, malaria obsolete. Uh, so it's more than just giving people quinine and suppressing the disease. It's about eradicating it. And in this instance, they use um, a thing called mosquito fish, <laughs> which I found fascinating, yeah. um, diesel oil, and also canal drainage. Um, can you tell us a bit about all three of these kind of attempts and, and, and their uh, impact on Chukurova and the malaria epidemic in the region? Absolutely. Sechil Binboa, who is a scholar of the Chukarova region as well, has described something I, I really like the term. She calls it experimental nature, where you have um, a medical establishment, public health establishment, um, agricultural um, institutions in Turkey using the environment as a place to, you know, experiment, simply put the, the mosquito fish, just um, spreading gambusia fish that eat mosquito larvae everywhere in the province to kind of see if it works, you know, yatu tarsa kind of uh, <laughs> mentality. Uh, there's lots of examples of this uh, in this region uh, at the time that are very fascinating. So you have this like openness to tinkering with the environment that is that is fundamental to everything else that happens, which is, you know, in some cases, radical attempts to uh, transform uh, the rivers and wetlands of the region and doing so with a very militant rhetoric. I have a section on after a flood of the Sehan River in Adana, which would flood all the time, um, just all the newspapers in Turkey having like angry, militant language about punishing the river for what it's done. And so th that's like right before the Second World War, right? So you have this, after the First World War, you don't have any armed conflicts in this region, really, but you have this like building of a uh, an idea that nature is not just something we're going to tame and control, but is even the enemy 
Like if we think about mosquitoes or, or wetlands or floods, these types of things. Um, so you have that going on and then, so that, that's where pesticides come in and pesticides end up being the thing that at least for Turkey gets the malaria rates down. They, they kill enough mosquitoes, um, over enough years that with medical surveillance and, um, and, uh, you know, treatments, they get the malaria rates down eventually in this region, almost to zero after it being just, you know, talking, doctors talking about like 75% of the villagers having malaria some years, uh, in the early Republican period that's through DDT. But of course, with that triumphal story that in the U S context ends up being the beginning of the environmentalist movement, we lose sight of the fact that there was many decades of other kinds of experimentation with different kinds of poisons and insecticides that maybe didn't work, but it built a new relationship with the environment that said, like, this is how we're going to manage these things now, which is very different than the more elegant solution of just going to the mountains for the summer uh, to avoid malaria, right? Now it's, we're going to spray chemicals all over our backyard, <laughs> essentially. So that's a real transformation. In your sort of years of going to Tukurova and, and studying this region, in your contemporary observations, were you seeing a palpable impact of the DDT and the various sort of experiments against nature that are still sort of persistent in the, in the region? There's so much work to be done on this by, I think, environmentalists in Turkey with a historical bent. Um, it's very hard to get information about, you know, studies that have looked at some of these impacts. Um, you'll, you'll find some, some stuff in journals online. The best expression of the like legacy of this period we can find in this region is something I don't talk about in the book, but it's in the neighboring Hatay region, which is sort of part of this bigger Chukarova region now, annexed by Turkey from the mandate, the French mandate of Syria in the late 30s, used to have this lake called Amik Lake. It was a, it was a lake, but also wetlands surrounding it, um, a, huge, a huge lake, um, not far from the city of Antakya. And Beginning in the late Ottoman period, you start to see plans in the archives for drainage of this lake in order to eliminate malaria in this region. Because it is a, you know, it's a good breeding ground for mosquitoes and what have you. But it also was a, a, this ecology in which, you know, people were raising water buffalo on the water. And very critically, this is a very important stop for migratory birds uh, who, who move from north to south on an annual basis. And so the Ottoman government never can undertake a project, the likes of which, the size of which would result in draining Amik Lake. And the French mandate government in Syria tries to do the same thing, but never approaches actually doing anything like that. It's actually only in the post-World War II period with Turkey's new access to loans um, and, uh, you know, hydrological expertise of, um, of countries like Israel, where similar projects have been undertaken, that you have this lake, uh, you know, over the course of a few decades being emptied out and used for irrigation and eliminated 
Um, and what's really interesting for me about this is this is after malaria is under control in Turkey. By the time the Amik Lake was drained, there was no need to undertake such a measure for malaria control, but it was still used as a justification when really it was about creating more agricultural land. And you can imagine, um, you know, sort of the personal vested interests that might have been in play um, for the people who greenlighted and undertook that project. And I, I don't, I've only, I only know what I've read through the documents and there's just some, there's some work that's been published by, you know, ecologists in Turkey, Turkey on how this was really not a good decision to destroy this lake, not just for the migratory birds, um, but for other reasons as well. Um, I think, I think the airport of Hatay region is now in what would, would have been the basin of this lake. So um, that's like one of the most incredible um, symbols of the transformation that occurs. And as I said, it kind of occurred according to a logic that didn't actually make sense at the time it was taking place, you know, post-World War II period. Wow. Um, thank you for that. Um, as a sort of, sort of reflection on the book as a whole at this, at this point, um, I wanted to bring us back to something that you mentioned and, and about which I, I had a question, uh, which is this, the dialectic of the cycles and refrain, which is so palpable yes. in your book. I mean, um, the history of Cilicia seems to have happened in sort of ebbs and flows for quite a long time and, and changing at the same time. And um, as we sort of move forward in time, the changes become accelerated in a way, or they become more drastic, or, or, or um, at least maybe the periodization of the book gives that impression to me. Um, and I was wondering what challenges or opportunities these cycles afforded you while crafting the book's narrative. It was remarkable that almost any topic I wanted to talk about in this 100-year period I focused on I could find some way to connect it to a story involving that seasonal migration to the mountains or the space that people would call the yaila, the summer summer home, summer pasture, summer plateau, that this very old, indeed ritual, because it had a spiritual dimension, but this very old practice of going to the mountains annually still remains as relevant at the end of my study in the 1950s, as it was at the beginning of the study with the forced settlement of nomads who were doing that, only now it's vacationers, right? I call it gentrification of the Yaila. Um, and so, you know, for somebody who hasn't looked at these types of materials that I looked at in the book or written this type of history, they might wonder, well, how are you going to really get a fine-grained sense of, you know, things like how people felt about the mountains or malaria, seasonal migration of nomads and villagers. And actually that those were the those were the refrains. No matter what kind of source I was reading, they would come up. If I'm reading an American consular official writing a commercial report, there'll be a thing where he says, you know, I've been sick for like the <laughs> entire summer or something like that. It comes up everywhere. As another random example, after the Adana massacres. They send Jamal Pasha with the army to Adana. He becomes the governor. He gets malaria and the, the province almost descends into chaos again. There are so many stories like this where those refrains uh, kept coming back no matter the source. 
that really I couldn't, I couldn't write it any other way. If every source talks about how hot it is in Adana during the summer and that there's malaria, we should be faithful to the sources and say like, well, this is what should structure a book about this region um, over such a long time period, the continuity, despite the, tr- the transformations. Thank you. And also your personal experience of waking up in the bus <laughs> and feeling the heat you know, of Adana. <laughs> I've been there a number of times and I've, you know, I spent a stretch of two months at one point in that region, but if it wasn't so hot in the summer, I would go back more, but it turns out that my schedule matches up with the uh, worst time to visit um, as, as borne out by the right. sources. Right. And this is, <laughs> I follow the, the Adana Facebook groups, um, there was one called Los Adanas, uh, like Los Angeles. And like the stuff people are talking about are the same things that came up in the early Republican newspapers in the late Ottoman, you know, period. Like, you know, these quotidian concerns about you know, how, how hot it is. It's still, I think, still very um, salient uh, in the culture of the region. Absolutely. Um, so we're nearing the end of our time together, but before I uh, let you go, I am very curious about what you are working on right now and what is in store uh, for the near future. The next book I'm going to write is, at least in theory, a prequel to this book that uses a different layer of time. By prequel, I mean it really examines closely Um, the first half of the 1860s, which serve as sort of a starting point for the transformations I talk about in the book in chapter two. It zooms in on the region for this very short period of time in the first half of the 1860s. Um, And I'm calling it a micro history of empire, not one empire as such, but rather the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, the Russian Empire, the French Empire, and the ascendant American Empire and its missionary representatives, who are all becoming important actors very suddenly in the Cilicia region. So I'm staying in Cilicia with this and keeping it related to the book. But but in this, in this project, I'm trying to further a different way of studying empire through the local um, to, to show what imperial histories usually miss, right? And, and I'm thinking more of like Western empires, right? That unless you do a deep dive, like in the languages of the region um, you're looking at um, and pay close attention, you might miss a lot of the significance of, you know, what appear on the imperial scale as very small events. And the small event I'm looking at is the unsolved murder of an American missionary. So there will also be a strong narrative dimension of some fascinating sources, not only from that individual and many other people connected to him, Wow. but his 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 wife and interrogations of the culprits and it will really be the kind of book that somebody should make into a movie <laughs> i hope <laughs> i hope so too that sounds uh very exciting and thank you so much for your time this was a blast and it was so nice to talk to you about this excellent and Um, informative and illuminating book about a part of the empire that has been understudied and deserves um, the kind of study that you were that you were giving it so thank you for that as well (laughs) thank you Darren I appreciate the platform and I appreciate you reading the book so thoroughly uh, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it